Welcome to the Angus Conversation. I'm your host, Miranda Ryman, and today I've got my co-host, Mark McCauley, right here. How are you, Miranda? I am doing good. How are you today, Mark? We're doing good. We're here at, uh, at, the, at the convention and, uh, in New Orleans, and it's been a great crowd and uh, lots of great conversations. We're ready to continue on uh, with another one here on the podcast. Yeah, this is a conversation today that I would say we've been having for quite a while in the Angus breed, probably as long as I've been in the the business, I have heard people talk about, can you use Angus in that environment? Can you use Angus, you know, kind of fill in the blank across the United States and the challenging situations we face? Yeah. I laughed this morning. It is Groundhog Day today that we're recording it. And, and there's, I was reminded of the movie Groundhog, that movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray. And he wakes up every day and it's the same day and he repeats that day. And no matter <laughs> what he does during that day, the next morning the alarm goes off and it's the same day again. You know, there are some of these conversations that it seems like Groundhog Day. And yet, at the same time, there's all these new tools we have. We have new ways of thinking about this. The environments are changing. So in some ways, it's Groundhog Day. In some ways, it's, it's a brand new territory. And we've got a couple of guests with us today that got a lot of experience and perspective over the years. So maybe they can tell us if it's a, a repeat. That's of not this. code for old. <laughs> <laughs> if it's a we repeat <laughs> for the same, of the same conversation or, or if we've been making some progress. Yeah. So. Mark, you want to go ahead and introduce our guests? Yeah, we've got uh, two gentlemen with us here this morning. Mr. James Henderson from uh, uh, B3R Childress, uh, Texas. James is was a former board member for the American Angus Association, served in various leadership roles, in particular leading uh, AGI, and and uh, just uh, just been a you know. I, what I've learned about James uh, over the over the years uh, has a has a big perspective on this on this business. Uh, kind of came up through the packing side of things, and and so probably <laughs> thinks maybe a little different than some seed stock breeders. Also runs in some pretty tough country, and so uh, James, thanks for uh, for being with us. And Mr. Paul Bennett. Oh, I was going to interrupt and say that I was at James's place in 2008, I think it was. And I remember taking pictures and you guys saying, this is the greenest it's ever been. Nobody is going to believe us that we raise cattle <laughs> in rough country. However, when the CAB crew was out to do your sustainability awards story, I think they got to see that it was indeed very rough country. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Mark, I interrupted no, you. No, <laughs> no, that's great. And Mr. Paul Bennett, uh, Paul from, uh, from Virginia, of course, Knollcrest Farms. Family's been in business for uh, a long time, staples in the seed stock business and, and uh, leaders in this industry. Paul um, currently serves on uh, uh, the American Angus Association Board of Directors, has served in, in, in numerous leadership roles, uh, you and your family over the, over the years, and, and Paul brings a, a great perspective to, uh, to this conversation as well, coming out of the southeast and, and with a little different environment that you sell genetics into. So we thought you guys would be two, uh, two really outstanding folks to, to share, and, and, and uh, I know conversations I've had with you guys over the years about this, this very topic of, of making sure we're getting our cattle to fit the environments that we're raising them in and so uh, yeah thanks for joining us if you guys just want to give us a little bit of your background and your customer base a little lay of the land of your operations that'd be great well um, first off I'm extremely excited to be here Miranda and Mark and certainly honored to sit next to uh, one of the uh, great legends in our breed and our industry, James Henderson. So uh, that's exciting for me. Um, we're very enthusiastic about being Angus breeders and our family has been for quite some time. We've been involved in the seed stock business since 1944 with Angus cattle since 1990. 
I am the third generation uh, in Red House on our family farm. The fourth generation is back there now as well. Uh, we do, uh, just to give you some basic background, we do derive 100% of our income from selling seed stock genetics. And uh, that's our real focus. I've said many times we're in the business of producing commercial bulls and everything else we produce is just a byproduct of our program. So that our commercial bull trade really drives both our short-term and long-term decisions. Uh, we have three breeds of cattle. Uh, we've had Hereford since 1944. We've had Gelpfe since 1980. We sell some hybrid bulls as well. Added Angus, as I mentioned, in 1990, and, and our Angus herd comprises about two-thirds of our uh, herd population right now. We market about 400 bulls a year and um, have been blessed to have been able to develop a very diverse bull trade uh, from different parts of the Mid-Atlantic and Southeast over the years. Okay. Awesome. James? <laughs> well, thank you for inviting me to be part of this and Paul, thank you for those kind words uh, that are mutual and, and that's exciting to be be here and be part of this. Bradley Three Ranch has been started raising Angus cattle in 1957 uh, and been a pretty harsh environment. In fact, to that point, the ranch that was originally bought had traded hands every 10 years because <laughs> it, had, it had gone bankrupt because of, <laughs> of harsh conditions. Uh, I think maybe we're the only ones crazy enough to have stuck it out that long, but uh, uh, we added Charlotte cattle in 2010, and um, so we also have a couple of breeds of cattle. And we're we're kind of the crazy folks that uh, that went out on a limb and and uh, built a feed yard and a packing house and and marketed branded beef. And so we've we've spent a lot of years trying to study how everything fits into the industry. And and the biggest part of our customer base. Um, we talk about the rough environment and so forth. We raise cattle in. Some of them go into real tough country. Yeah. And, and uh, <laughs> so we're always looking for that opportunity to have cattle that can survive in those conditions. So you're tough country and they're real tough country. And you've got to <laughs> yeah. see the sliding scale. <laughs> the spectrum. For a guy who grew up in central Illinois, you know, was, we had six feet of topsoil. You could dig a post hole with a spade, you know. Uh, it, uh, I see you guys, what you call tough country is, uh, is, is, is drastically different. I guess let's talk about that. You, you talk about, both of you talk about the constraints of your commercial customers. Both of you have a focus on that. Talk about maybe, James, your, what, what are the environmental constraints of your customers? What, what, what specifically are they dealing with in, in when they come onto your place looking for bulls? Probably the biggest thing that, that they look for is something that's going to hold up. Uh, you know, a big number of our customers would operate, you know, some of them have 10,000 acre trash. Yeah. Uh, you know, that that's a little different than probably most Angus customers deal with. Uh, you know, our cows are all in two section pastures and, you know, they've got to cover a lot of country. Bulls have got to cover country to, to get cows bred. And, and those are probably the biggest things, but they also have to adapt very quickly because our our rainfall is not only short but sporadic and so we don't know when it's going to happen the cows have to be able to flush up quickly 
because nutrition only is optimum for a short period of time and, and they've got to then hold that body condition until we get rainfall to replenish it. So those are probably the big factors that, that our bull customers are looking yeah. for. Elevation challenges much for you well, guys? Well, and, and we are right off of the front range yeah. of, of the Rockies, and so we will sell a lot of bulls in the seven to 8,000 feet elevation range. Yeah. And uh, so, so that is a big concern for our customers, uh, you know, and, and so, so we really try to put a lot of that into what we're looking for as well. Yeah. Paul, how about at your place? Is Mid-Atlantic down to the southeast, I know, Correct. is is a big, is kind of your, a lot of your footprint? Yep. Well, you know, I was just sitting here thinking that uh, I think farmers and ranchers, uh, I would say probably most people that are here today, if you ask them about the environment that they operate in, with uh, they're going to puff up and tell you how tough it is where they are. It doesn't matter where they are. And so maybe in the big scheme of things, our environment is not as uh, as impactful on our cattle as James's is, but James doesn't run on endophyte fescue. And so when I think about environmental limitations to cattle, probably fescue is what comes to mind first. And um, we try to have our operation, our environment, mimic that of our commercial bull customers. So we very intentionally and deliberately never introduced any endophyte free fescue into our place. It would probably have been logical to do so otherwise. But uh, we pretty much run on hot fescue and that's what thrives in Southside Virginia and a lot of the Southeast and and West of us as well. So um, that probably is the one single most limiting factor to cattle doing well in our environment. And um, we just, you know, we feel like we don't want to change the environment. We want to adapt the cattle to the environment. And um, really for us, um, you know, natural selection, I think, is, is very key to our selection program as we think about adaptability. It's all about working with Mother Nature and letting yeah. her help us identify those cattle that'll work in our fescue environment. Uh, one good thing about cattle that thrive on fescue is typically we can send them particularly west or north and they will really thrive when we move them outside of our environment there locally. Yeah, Going east to west is, or east to north can, can work. Usually going the other way is a I learned that early in my, in one of my, straight out of grad school, I had worked for a beef improvement program and we had brought a bunch of really nice genetic heifers, uh, bred heifers out of Nebraska and we stuck them into Kentucky and Tennessee and and uh, I, I got to go clean some of that up because it was a... Uh, it was a learning experience. It was a learning experience. Yeah. We call it a train wreck. Uh, but, uh, you know, just the, the uh, again, how tough that, that fescue can be on cattle that aren't used to it. Sure. Uh, James, I remember you also talking about water, and you have that. You've got high sulfur in in some of your water or in that region as well. That's something I would have probably, honestly, just not thought about. Yeah, we have we have very high sulfates and nitrates in the water, and in fact, uh, moving cattle into our environment, and especially the summertime, uh, a lot of times we'll lose the cattle because they just flat won't drink it. Uh, they'll lick it. They'll, you know, they they'll want to drink it, but they just it's it's such that they absolutely won't and and so the adaptability to the water environment's a really big thing for for the cows and and 
certainly is one of those things that, that will inhibit outside genetics a lot of times from coming into that area. Yeah. So adaptability to that, how do they, I mean, it's just over time throughout the generations or? Basically, you know, the calves that are born there, they don't have any other option. Uh, they, they learn how to drink <laughs> They don't know water. any better. Mom, yeah. mom teaches them pretty quick, you know, this is, this is it. And, yeah. and uh, so they learn it pretty well. And like I say, if you brought cattle from, from good water sources in there, mm-hmm. um, they're like, I know there's better water. Where is it? <laughs> and, <laughs> they know they'll better. hold out for something better and they never find it. And they don't find it. So, yeah, it can be really tough. Sure. Let's talk about maybe specifically feet, because I, as I hear about your different environments, there's different demands on feet. In your case, it's probably large, big country with rocks, and you, Paul, in your country, it's probably dealing with mud sometimes. Right. Talk, talk about feet and how you guys go about your your philosophy on feet, maybe some of the issues, some of the things you tools you've used <laughs> to, to try to get better. Well, we certainly are... I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when we think about selecting Angus cattle for foot structure is their foot EPDs that have been introduced and are becoming more valuable every day as we add accuracy. Certainly a lot of data being added to that database on a weekly basis, so it's kind of interesting from Friday to Friday to, to have the security of knowing that those EPDs mean more every week. They do. And I'd like to take this opportunity to encourage Angus breeders to really aggressively submit those phenotypes, not only for that trait, but for all others, because they're key to us making Angus cattle better in the future. You know, I think it's probably been within the last five years or so that really uh, foot structure, foot problems have come to the forefront uh, in all breeds of cattle. And uh, maybe we as seed stock producers did a poor job years ago recognizing that uh, we needed to be breeding cattle from the ground up. And so I think the, uh, the awareness of breeders uh, has certainly been heightened by the signals that they've gotten and we've gotten from our commercial bull customers. Um, but, um, you know, the good thing about using highly proven sires is that we can make improvement pretty quickly I think and so certainly in our breeding program our goal is to improve foot structure I mean that's a very high priority for us and I think most Angus breeders now irrespective of their environment and the other thing that we try to do is have a very judicious uh, culling program and identify those lines of cattle that are inferior and remove them from you know, from being contributors to our herds in the future. And so um, I think the introduction of the foot EPDs has just really brought to to the forefront breeders' awareness of that. Whether or not they're using the EPD right. on a daily mm-hmm. basis, it's just a heightened awareness that I think is going to serve our breed very well moving forward. Yeah. Well, I... I Paul, I appreciate one. I appreciate the plug for EPDs and how important they are and how important phenotypes are to yep. those EPDs. And hopefully everybody can begin to understand that that EPDs without phenotypes don't work very long. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so <laughs> I appreciate that greatly. And, and feet are a, are a big part of anything that we do. And, you know, people look at me a lot of times really funny when I talk about we 
we embarked about 25 years ago on a 20-year on a plan to get water where it was no more than a half a mile from any place in our pastures. And uh, <laughs> they, they're like, <laughs> half a mile? And, and we're like, golly, yeah, we're That's really... That's a goal? Yeah. <laughs> we're, really, we're really proud of the fact that it's only a half a mile right. to, to water anywhere in those pastures. And so... It, it's one of those things that they do have to cover a lot of country, and, and a lot of it's tough country. It's steep up and down. It's rocky. It's it's things, and so those cattle have to travel, and the calves have to travel, you know, in that same vein. Yeah. And 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 the bulls, when we have them out in the pasture, they've got to be able to travel and cover those cows. And you know, we we had one customer in the northwest who breeds cows on the way to summer pasture. They spend about six weeks taking those cows 125 miles from winter range to summer range mm. and, and the bulls have to breed them in that while they're traveling while they're traveling in that mm. in that sure. time period so <laughs> you know those kinds of things feet become really important and it's one of the things we've done for a long time i was fortunate enough to be chairman of agi when we uh, started the foot epd and and incorporated the uh, actually the Australian genetics because they had more foot scores than we did of, of U.S. bulls and, and uh, being able to get that going because I think it's one of the more important things not only for our cow-calf customers but if, if the feet and legs don't hold up in the feed yard um, that's a real problem as well and, and so we've got several customers downstream that feet and legs become really important sure. and, and so I think it's a big deal. So you were doing that before there was an EPD, though, right? Before there was an EPD, mm-hmm. yep. And that's one of the things we've tried to stay in front of. Hair Shed would be a, another one of those that I guess we started 15 years ago, Hair Shed scoring cattle and, and turning that data in and so forth. So we, we try to think of those traits from a harsh environment standpoint that affect us and our customers and, and really pay attention to those. Having the EPDs has that made allowed you to make change quicker? Do you think? Or? Well, it, it, it certainly reduces the amount of, of research that I have to do on, <laughs> on what we're doing and how because it's it's sure. much simpler to sit there and look at EPDs and say yes and no and yeah you know yeah. those kinds of things as we're looking for those traits. So um, and and the more accuracy we can get on that, the easier that becomes. Sure. Paul, I heard him mention hair shed. We didn't talk about that with you at all. How important sure. is that in oh, your guys' environment? Yeah. I mean, that would be paramount on fescue. Hair shed is critical. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of go back to the mother nature thing. Um, if we, you know, if we have high expectations of our cow herd to perform in an efficient and regular manner, then we're going to identify the cattle that have adaptability because they're the ones that are going to calve early, breed early, raise a a calf that's big enough, and then stay in the cow herd. So, um, you know, I go back to the thought process of saying, let's don't try to manage problems out of our cattle, let's Mm -hmm. breed them out of our cattle. Mm -hmm. And um, with that in mind, we've certainly identified cow lines that uh, tend to thrive at our place more so than others do. And, um, you know, the other thing that I would suggest, thinking about James's comments on how he uses the EPDs, we find, like, the hair shed and, and foot 
PPDs especially important when we're considering outside genetics that we might bring in cattle that we don't necessarily have experience with in our environment and at our place. And that certainly increases my confidence in using a bull, let's say, that's unrelated to, to our cow herd. Because I think it should be all of our goals to, you know, we, we want to be able to select genetics from the whole population rather than a subset of the population if we can. Now, obviously, our constraints are going to cause us to want to utilize only a subset of the population, but I want to look at everything that's out there and consider everything that's out there and try to stay very open-minded to what genetics might work best because I think some of these EPDs that we're capturing data on now are probably going to reveal some things to us that we weren't expected to find out. Good, bad, or otherwise, yes, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a benefit of a national cattle evaluation that sometimes we almost lose sight of, that we've been doing it now, I think, for long enough that, you know, before EPDs and our ability to, to be able to truly do a national evaluation, to take, to take the, the data from one part of the country and compare genetics across those different datas and to be able to roll that up and to, and to, and to put it back out into tools that are usable to do exactly what you're just talking. I mean, again, I, I tend to think it's like, that's yesterday's news, but it's probably uh, something that we that, that we need to celebrate still a little bit more and remember how valuable that is and how yeah. fortunate we are in the Angus breed to have had breeders for a long, long time been committed to data submission and, and, uh, and building these tools. So you're probably not just using those, what I would call the the adaptive EPDs, you know, the environmental EPDs, but you're also probably using some production EPDs too to to help you fit in those environments. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I was looking at a pedigree this morning and realized there are 31 traits and indexes that as breeders we have access to. Mm-hmm. And um, what I should have done was said, okay, let me take a minute here and actually think about how many of those 31 uh, numbers contribute to adaptability. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, a very high percentage of them do. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any question about sure. that. So let's talk, maybe talk about that. Maybe talk about growth and, and, and milk, both mm-hmm. mature weight. I guess I'm going to throw all of those kind of in there because I think as an indication of, 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 of dollar en of, of maintenance requirements and and, and you know, limited feed resources or abundant feed resources, whatever your <laughs> customers are in. But we're talking about yeah, <laughs> abundant. You James what almost is, fell James. off his chair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what you call abundant, what I might be thinking about as abundant or different. But I guess we're thinking thinking about the more more extremes and the harsh conditions. But how how are your customers using those? How are you using those um, to, to to help honestly help your customers be more profitable and solve problems? And well, we look at some of those things from from numerous perspectives you know intake is one of those obviously mm-hmm. um, the more intake a cow requires the more country of ours that she's got to cover right. uh, you know then the more severe all of those things b- become from an environmental standpoint so that's a that's a big factor but also having spent 40 years as a packer um, <laughs> big intake cattle don't dress very well you know and and so that's a two-sided thing that we look at as, as really important to, to not only the adaptability of the environment, but also on the, on the carcass side of what we do. And, and so, you know, those EPDs are useful in several ways in, in trying to make sure that we study those, understand the usefulness of them. And, and 
one of the things I think that mistakes that we make as breeders is we tend to chase numbers sometimes. And we need to remember that EPDs are, you know, they're about population genetics. And on average, they work better than any tool that has ever come along any other way. But on an individual animal, you know, the accuracy of each one of those EPDs um, may not be perfect. And, mm -hmm. and so we, we need to understand that you use those things as guides. And because there's 31 of yep. them, Paul, you know, we're not going to have the best of every one of those traits. So sure. which ones of those, where are the trade-offs? How do we fit those into our environment? And, uh, and how do we make those things work? Mm -hmm. Specifically, maybe on on milk. What, what? So, a commercial guy coming into your place, James. What? What? Where, what's? Where, where's their target for milk? Well, you know, and one of the things I learned at AGI is maybe maybe milk EPD is a little bit misnamed. Uh, it's really a, a maternal effect EPD rather than sure. a milk production right. EPD, yep. and I, I think that's important for us to step back and look at that. I've had to, I know, because initially early on I'm sitting there thinking milk production EPD and we know all of the nutrition yeah. requirements and how that regresses as you raise that up but maternal effect EPD is a little bit different than that and so we've we've adjusted kind of our targets mm -hmm. of that EPD in our environment and making sure that we have other things that, that the cows work towards so I think that's important the mature growth part that that you ask about really important to us um, you know our our bull sale that's that's coming up there we've had a lot of customers call and say I don't want bulls out of cows that weighed more than X mm -hmm. you know or had maternal grandmothers that weighed more than X and and that becomes a real big thing in, in our environment and, and we we forget that an animal unit was based on a thousand pound cow, mm -hmm. you know, and a 1600 right. pound cow is 1.6 animal units and you can't run as many of them as you could, you know, smaller cows. And so again, as you begin to look at scarce feed resources, those things become bigger and bigger factors for us. Yeah. In your country, Paul. Yep. So I suspect specifically with respect to milk, I think that our customer base, our environment would tolerate a little more milk obviously than than you in fact probably what's ideal would be you know a mid-20s milk as to, as opposed to I mean, breed average or maybe even a little bit above breed average um, you know one thing that I think Jim and Brian and Dalton and I are always faced with is is producing what our bull customers want short term but still keeping the long-term viability of the cow herd in mind. And, you know, my, my average, our average bull customer tells me we want a Cavanese bull with as much growth as you could breed into him. And um, for most of them, it's, and he's got to be quiet and he's got to be good-footed and slick-haired, but for most of our bull customers, it's a pretty simple model. And in a lot of cases, we know that if they repeat that selection criteria time after time, they're gonna create a cow herd that's not going to be profitable for them. So our goal always is to try to identify and reproduce those cattle that'll defy the odds 
and give us what our bull customers are wanting to pay the most for short term because we are in business, uh, but yet give us a cow herd that's going to be very user friendly in our environment 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And, you know, I used to think that in dealing with a bull customer, the first thing you needed to do was educate them. And so they'd get it right. Well, I, I've kind of moved past that at this point, James. I learned that that process doesn't always work as well as I'd like it to. So I tend to be very responsive to what our bull customers want. And, you know, we found that, um, like, for example, in the data that we present to our bull customers in our sale catalogs and, and in the, the private treaty bulls, our customers are very receptive. They're adaptable to using the data that we think is important for them. So maybe in a kind of a subtle way, I'm trying to uh, encourage them to focus on the right tools to fit their needs. And we're very fortunate in that we've developed uh, a big part of our bull trade is a sight unseen bull trade. And so that gives us an opportunity to be more interactive with our customers and help them um, identify the bulls that are going to work best for them because, you know, as I think about the tools that we give our customers to address adaptability or anything else, probably the best tool we give our customers is that 12-month unconditional guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, you know, a lot of it is about, is a, there's a selfish motive in creating those, those bulls and putting those bulls out there that are good-footed and that don't uh, take off like a rocket when you unload him off the back of that trailer and that will still look good after breeding cows for six or eight months on fescue. Uh, So that's a big tool. 24-7, 365, all day, every day. Ranching never stops and your cow herd's nutrition shouldn't stop either. Westway Feed Products produces molasses-based liquid feed supplements for your cow herd. This liquid feed adds protein, energy, vitamins, and minerals to complement your standing forages, hay, or mixed rations. By increasing forage digestibility, Westway's liquid supplements support fetal programming, increase cow pregnancy rates, and overall herd performance. To learn more about Westway's liquid feed supplements, 24-7, 365 nutrition concepts, or to locate a dealer, visit www.westwayfeed.com or give us a call at 800-800-7517. I like that long view versus the short-term gain. You're somebody that's looking for lifetime customers, not customers right now. Well, in the cattle genetics, we we have to have a long lens, but I know to your point, you still got to pay bills. Sure. So, I mean, it's uh, it's a tricky balance. And and I I hear it all the time, the the commercial guy that says he's, boy, his cows are maybe getting a little big, and then he comes in and wants to pick the biggest, stoutest bull out there. You know, it's hard, right? And so helping your customers maybe you know, see some of those things and, and uh, choose correctly is, is uh, there's a balance. There's a balance. You know, and I, I, I think that's part of our responsibility as seed stock Absolutely. producers is, and, and we do that for a lot of our customers, knowing their environment and where they are in the scale of things. You know, I'll provide them a list of bulls saying, pick, pick, pick bulls from this list. Right. You know, mm-hmm. don't, right. don't look at the whole thing. Let's narrow this thing down and and pick bulls out of this list, they're gonna work for you. And mm-hmm. and uh, and we can modify that as we understand how their cow herd evolves and yep. moves and, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. And I think that's the, 
maybe the single most important thing we can do as seed stock producers. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Now, in order to have that list, you've got to know your customers pretty well. How often are you guys out traveling, kind of seeing what your customers are dealing with, or how do you monitor what it is that they need? One of the things that, that we do is we probably deliver 70 or 75 yeah. percent of the uh, of the bulls that we sell mm-hmm. and and we, we do that somewhat intentionally because it's an opportunity to to see their place see their environment see their cows mm-hmm. um, you know visit with them a little bit more that's maybe not in the pressure scene of a mm-hmm. sale day and and those kinds of things and really you know my uh, my mother t- harped on me as a child that God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, we need to do a little more listening and, 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 you know, sometimes that's the best thing we can do is listen to those guys because they're typically not on those places just for grins. They're there to make money as well and, and they can tell us what's working for them. You bet. Absolutely. Well, I totally agree on the bull delivery thing. Our goal is to deliver as many bulls as we can and uh, of course, we're never opposed to someone picking one up versus <laughs> having it delivered. But if you are delivering bulls, you need to you need to take advantage of that opportunity. And um, I certainly agree with you on being a good listener. And I think it's important when we get a phone call from someone that we're not familiar with, we need to be able to ask the right questions to make sure. And you know, people appreciate that. I mean, really. We talk about being in the cattle business, business, but really we're in the people business. And um, as as I've gotten older, I think that probably what motivates me more now than maybe did 20 or 30 years ago is the people that I have an opportunity to interact with. Um, not just our family, Jim, Brian, Dalton, and everyone there at, at Nolcrest Farm, mm-hmm. but our customer base. and. Um, uh, we never take that for granted, and we always understand that, you know, our success is based on our customers' success, and it needs to work that way. How have your customers changed over the years? I, maybe even, I think even specifically breed composition of the of the cow herds that you're selling bulls into. Sure. I mean, what kind of what have you guys seen over the last? I mean, obviously we know <laughs> we've had more growth in in Angus um, across the the, the industry. Um, what, what's What's uh, what change has and maybe thinking about the role of Angus genetics in those in those cow herds? How has that changed? What are they looking to the breed? Are they looking to the breed differently in some cases? I guess I'd just be curious of your perspective on that. That was like three questions in one. Mark. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I do that. It, it was, but uh, <laughs> to pick one and answer. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I mean, several things in 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 our location. Um, hadn't been all that many years ago that it was basically all Herefords, right. you know, in, in that country. And, and that's evolved fairly quickly to where kind of the standard joke is Mary Lou and I are driving down the road is, you know, there's a, there's some of those endangered species, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's really obviously changed the Our cow apologies herd. to all Hereford listeners. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it really changed the environment in West Texas going from basically 100% Hereford cows to probably now most of them are, are black and uh, so we've, we've seen that but we're also in, in feed yard country uh, you know I think 35% of the all of the fed cattle in the United States are within 100 miles of Amarillo and we are too so we, we fit in that that circle and, and so 
cattle feeding is a huge part of what goes on in and around us. And, and so not only do we have to think of, of the environment of the cows and how we evolve that, but how has the feeding business and packing business evolved? Uh, there is absolutely no question, having spent the time that I did in the meat packing business and so forth, the effect that certified Angus beef has had on our industry. Um, being able to to have increased demand and market for cattle that meet the specs for certified Angus beef has, has had a huge impact on how that moves forward and what those premiums are and in turning those cows black. And and so I, I think that the programs and so forth that Angus Association's had and the long-term view that they've had about the industry is, as, has change those dynamics. Yeah. Sure. Changes in your country, Paul, and I specifically think kind of down to the south and in, in Florida and some of that country in particular. Well, I think there's no question that the Angus breed has infiltrated the southeast, mid-Atlantic and southeast uh, quite a bit in the last 10 years, and there's no question that uh, pretty much every bull we sell irrespective of what breed he is, goes on a predominantly Angus cow. And um, we do advocate crossbreeding to some of our customers. I always tell them that I think Angus needs to be the common denominator in any well-structured crossbreeding program. And uh, that's pretty much standard procedure. Um, so um, the good thing is that with the diversity of that Angus cow, and uh, the, the, her evolution over the last 30 years probably in particular has made her extremely versatile. And uh, she's a cow that'll work in a lot of different environments. And she's a cow that uh, has a lot fewer problems than she maybe had 30 years ago. And so um, she's a pretty neat tool to work with. And um, just, you know, when I talk to people about using a bull. I mean, if I call James and say, hey, you got this bull, usually about the first question I ask is how do I need to protect him if I'm going to be mating him, okay? <laughs> and uh, years ago, most Angus bulls needed a bit of protection here and there. And I'm finding that uh, those bulls need, need less protection because they're balanced, they're complete, they're kind of between the ditches. And I think that we need to um, even though it's our nature to always think more, bigger, heavier, um, we need to maintain a focus on the balanced approach and particularly in terms of making cows. I think that our dollar maternal index is highly focused on that and I think that it will continue to evolve. We know that that's probably the one index that we have uh, in the Angus toolbox right now that is probably not yet perfect and uh, we look forward to really getting it much closer to exactly right in the next few years and I think there are things in place that are going to allow that to happen and so I'm really excited about our dollar maternal index and uh, its value to our breeders moving forward and we're finding uptake on that with our bull customers is great. I mean they're really migrating to that, those that are retaining their own females and uh, 
seeing it as a very valuable tool. You know, I'd also mention, as we kind of think about adaptability, I think another tool that we will have at some point in the not too distant future is uh, being able to embrace some of the congestive heart failure issues. And, um, you know, we think about heart health. I mean, we as humans focus on our heart health so much because it, it affects every part of our daily lives pretty much. And there's no reason for that same thing not to exist with cattle. Obviously, we've got a lot to learn, but I know Angus is very aggressively moving in that direction. And I think some of the things that we'll uncover with respect to bovine congestive heart failure in the next few years are going to help us address adaptability in a very big way. Yeah, we're planning on having an episode on that kind of later on in the season. And part of it was just we might know more in a couple of months than yeah, we know right. right now, yeah. even today. Sure. So, and it might be explaining some things. I mean, we, we, we tend to look at it from a from a you know feedlot mortality issue, but obviously if there's some subclinical things or things that are aren't uh, that are uh, impeding Whole performance or, sure. or longevity in the cow herd, all sure. sorts of things we could learn in that regard. Maybe if I could. I'm yeah, look, go ahead. Do I have permission to ask one more? Yeah. yeah so, um, <laughs> specifically speaking about Boss Indicus and, and, and the ear, I, I, that's to me one of the things I, I think if we maybe 20 years ago had been talking about in, in the maybe the deep south, the coastal regions, how much ear do you need to have in a cow to to, to live and, and thrive in that environment? I, I think that's, that's probably less, that's a lower percentage, I believe, than maybe what it would have been 20 years ago. And does that, I think about the Angus breed, does that, is that putting more pressure on the Angus breed to make sure that we do have cattle that are heat tolerant, insect, I mean, we don't even haven't really talked about insects, things right. like that, or is that, is that just something that's always going to need to be there at a, at a, at some percentage? I'm curious feedback maybe you get from your customers, or are we, we still trying to figure that one out? I think our customers in that, uh, subtropic environment and and that's really what we're trying to to, to deal with um, depending on their proximity to the Gulf Coast and I don't I don't know much about the Atlantic coast but uh, the, the Gulf Coast they're they're going to have to have a certain amount of boss indicus in those cattle we we don't have enough insect resistance and and heat tolerance in straight Angus cattle to to thrive in in that environment that if we want to talk about a harsh environment that's probably about as harsh as it gets and 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 some of that and so I, I think that you know I think that's the challenge and so we talk a lot about maternal and terminal and other terms around Angus is probably best utilized as a terminal cross in that subtropic region you know so because those cows are not having to to survive and they can rotate bulls through there and make some things work and and I, I think that we need to understand that you know we're not perfect yet in every environment but how do we fit and, and how does it work and how do we market those cats you talk about insects it makes me appreciate the negative too it was when I left uh, Nebraska <laughs> there are some benefits to that for sure. there you go yeah well and I probably would not have my um, a good barometer on the Boss Indicus uh, thing in in the in our bull trade area in the South, except to say that 
a lot of our customers are, their goal is to reduce that influence to the extent that they can, yeah. and it's a constant uh, test. You know, they're always saying, okay, let's figure out what we can get by with here and what that threshold, the minimum threshold is. And, um, you know, we get varying answers from varying operations. So um, yeah. uh, I do agree. I think it'll be very difficult to to remove the influence of those cattle because they are, they are critical to a tropical environment. Yeah. No question. As Mark asked the question, I kind of wondered, is it that we need... That, that percentage has gotten less because the Angus cattle have gotten better, or is it that we've learned better what that percentage should be? I, I think both. I, I think probably, you know, genetics is a, is a relatively new term in, in that part of the world. I don't know that that was something that was paid a lot of attention to maybe in years past. And as, as they've, the commercial producers in that part of the world have become more progressive they, they've really begun to understand how to utilize genetics in programs to really improve what they're doing and I, I think we've played a big role in that well I would think feeder calf value has sent a signal you know of, right. of as the, that market has changed more value-based marketing to put more marbling in particular more quality grade yep. I mean it's 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 put a, an opportunity out there to, to try to maximize that while keeping the cow that, that still works in their environment. And so to your point there probably Paul they probably push that trying to find out where that where that limit sweet is, spot is where that sweet spot exactly. yeah well said. Sure. As you guys look ahead to the future, do you think that these environmental challenges will it will any of them lessen? Will they get worse? What'll replace them? You know, if if everybody's right about how uh, about climate change, I think they become worse. Uh, you know, I know in our environment, it seems like the last ten years have been much more challenging from a consistency of rainfall and and those types of things that we deal with. Um, certainly, extremes of of weather are probably more prone to be, and so I think that adaptability becomes more so and and I think that that what we see especially in Texas um, I, I would I don't know what the number is today but the amount of agriculture land that we're losing to urban sprawl mm -hmm. on a daily basis is, is huge in Texas and and so those cows are getting pushed into harsher and harsher mm -hmm. environments as as that gets eaten up and and so that's going to become more and more important totally agree with you and i was just sitting here thinking that in the future it's it's going to become increasingly important that that the cattle we're working with adapt to a marginal environment because we're going to be backed into that corner of having to utilize that only the marginal real estate to run cattle on i mean i think that's just the reality of it yeah. So. And at the same time, that's that's to me maybe one of the, you know, one of the strengths that, of our industry, right? Absolutely. That is why we, you know, we can take that marginal land and make it productive. That, and that's why we have ruminants. Exactly. <laughs> that's why God invented the rumen, uh, you know. And so, absolutely. Is there a tool out there, you guys? I, I know we mentioned in kind of optimism about the the tools that that are yet to come. Is there what's the one that you're looking maybe most forward to as it relates to this whole adaptability uh, uh, topic? 
from from my perspective, it's going to be the cow longevity, right. fertility piece of of this business. And we we've probably gone to the extreme. We've put an extreme amount of pressure on our cows to breed in a short period of time. I'm turning bulls out 45 days, and probably the toughest time of the year for us nutritionally to breed a cow and um, but I can I can look at all of the EPDs I can look at all of the things all the tools that we have but shortening the calving season is the fastest way to improve average weaning weights you know I don't I don't care what else we do or how we do it I you know by shortening that calving season we can improve weaning weights way quicker and so to me, those are the things that, that I think will improve our industry drastically. Totally agree with you. That was what popped in my mind when you asked that question, Mark. I think that uh, uh, our ability, the breed's ability to quantify longevity in the Angus cow uh, to give us tools to make selections that'll improve cow longevity. I mean, we look at, um, you know, the part of the cycle, price cycle, cattle cycle that we're moving into, the value of those replacements is going to be extremely high, it appears. So the lifespan of that cow is going to become increasingly important. So I think that, and you know, the, un, the unfortunate thing is that um, that that whole dollar maternal thing, the, the pieces that are a part of that puzzle, it's fairly elusive. I right. mean, it is so hard. much more difficult to. It's hard quantify. to collect that data. It, and, <laughs> and you know, you think about that compared to a dollar beef. Oh my goodness, the differences that exist there in us being able to have a high level of confidence in the tools that we're creating. But um, but, but on the other side of that, Paul, you know, because we're putting so much pressure on our cow herd. Anytime I call a cow because she's open, I can go back and look, and I've got a, a mother, a sister, a grandmother, or something that I called for the same reason, same reason. Mm-hmm. Which, which tells me that these traits are probably more highly heritable than, than we think, than we, the data that we currently have because of all the noise and the difficulty of, right. of collecting that data and all of those kinds of things. And so that really creates a lot of optimism in my part that we really can find ways to select cattle for those traits and improve on those kinds of things and that that you know when we when we have that tool you know it's going to help us a lot well and we've got i mean we're we're well into fixing the foot problem you know we're we're going to have utter epds that'll help us so i mean the pieces of the puzzle are being put together Mm -hmm. and and I didn't mean to suggest that I was not optimistic about it, but it's probably it's probably better to look at it in pieces rather than as a whole right, right. now. Yeah. And when you look at it in terms of the ingredients in the recipe, then yeah, there's a lot of reason for optimism to think that we can get it right. Yeah. When you guys both keyed on something of, of your philosophy too, is that you're managing these genetics and the environments they need to go into. And I, I think that's, you know, that's where we can, can and, and not try to 
cover up some problems or manage through some things that are going to later manifest themselves out with our commercial producers that don't have the luxury of right. or the incentive to, to do that, sure. right? And and so it's that it's that combination of I don't know we're going to ever come up with an EPD for sulfur water <laughs> acceptance. I don't know. You know, there's some of these things I think that are pretty baked into our environments that it's that we're going to we you know we want to fix everything with genetics, but no. it's going to be no, I, it's going to be a balanced approach. I think being able to clean up the water is going to be a maybe much that bigger, what we much bigger priority yeah. than genetics yeah. for adaptability. Yeah. So. Well, you guys have covered a lot of ground here today. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you wanted an opportunity to talk about as it relates to as it relates to this or maybe just open mic? <laughs> I'll think of that. that. That'll come to me about five minutes from now <laughs> after I'm uh, walking through the trade show. No, I'd just like to thank you folks. I mean, I, you know, Having been just a little over a year on the Angus board, uh, my learning curve has been extremely steep, and I'm sure will continue to, to do so. But it has been a very eye-opening experience to me, as I'm sure it was for you, James, just to uh, to be aware of the level of passion and professionalism that exists from top to bottom, bottom to top in the American Angus Association, and uh, it's really exciting to be a part of that team. Well, Paul, I, I, I agree, and I appreciate your comment. I know the learning curve was really steep, it, it, or at least it was for me, um, in, in getting in there. But, but the resources that we have as Angus breeders, uh, are there's nothing to compare those to. And, and we've got really bright, intelligent staff that, that's, you know, doing those things every day, and, and uh, it's amazing. One of, one of the things my dad used to always tell me is anytime you start on something, put a stick in the ground, and every once in a while I look at that stick, and as long as you're looking back at it, you're making progress. Right. You know, and, 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 and if you look at where the Angus breed was 20, 30, 40 years ago, and look at where we are today, we've made, probably can't see that stick anymore, and, and uh, so we've made huge progress, and, and it's fun. It's great perspective, great yeah. wisdom. I think sometimes we do get hung up on everything that's right in front of us. Don't take time to kind of look back a little bit and, and, and celebrate it. Uh, you know, not get complacent, but but appreciate. I guess is probably the better word. And so, that's absolutely appreciate. right. We uh, we always end on a random question of the week. I think Mark was going to try to skip it. I could see you just no, no. I just I, I say every week. This is always the scary part of the podcast right here. So just so you know. Right, and I wrote one down, and I'm going to even divert from that uh -oh. after the conversation. Uh -oh. So if you guys could pick up and run cattle in a different environment for a month, where would you go? Where would, what environment would you like to see? I wonder if I could hack it there. <laughs> the, this, the silence at the mic tells me you like, you, you like your challenges, and you're not so sure you want to take on anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> now we're we're in a very unique position because the recreation use for our land in our area has raised the cost on a per unit animal unit basis such that it, it would be in, extremely impossible to buy land in our area and start an operation because you're sure. you're probably looking today at at fifty five to sixty thousand dollars an animal unit per mm -hmm. acre. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as I look at those things, there's lots of opportunity in other places to have land that would be much cheaper on a per animal unit basis. And it, it's really more a matter of 
what would that place look like, <laughs> you know, kind of a thing than, than, than where we are. And, and so, you know. You're, you're and, thinking and, too hard about it, James. <laughs> I but, want you to say, like, I don't know, maybe the coast of California or something. <laughs> that would be Hawaii? Not, Hawaii. Hawaii. Hawaii? See, that was going to be my answer. <laughs> Paul Von Holt is the chairman of the, of the Cattle Facts Board. He was up there talking today. And I've always been intrigued by running cattle in Hawaii. I just, I've never seen it. I need to go see it. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I think that would, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if a month would be enough, especially right now when it's cold. It, it, it's not what you think of because I've I've been on mm-hmm. the Parker Ranch in yeah. July when everybody was wearing jackets, and they're forty miles from sea level. Yeah, you know, and yeah. And, and you're like, golly, what a drastic deal. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I was on some ranches in Hawaii. We been on there for my husband's work, and I decided rather than sit on the beach, I was just going to go visit some Angus producers. And the thing that I don't think hit me until right then as we were talking about things was market access and you know having to throw feeder calves on a boat and selecting cattle based on how tall they were so they could fit fit in the containers and so yeah i think hawaii is off my list actually mark but all right paul we're giving you time to think about it question in a different way i'm not taking your bait (laughs) (laughs) i'd like to stay where i am and the reason that i say that is because uh our community, our part of the state of Virginia, historically was timber and tobacco, and I certainly, you know, we we live on a what used to be a tobacco farm, and um, but I do believe that the way we're utilizing it now is its most productive and and greatest potential is running cows on it, and and I think about that very often, uh, even though we're running on hot fescue, I think, you know, this is. This is the way that we need to be utilizing this land. Uh, it's good for us. It's good for the community. It's good for the world. And, um, you know, we always want to think we're contributing. And um, some days we contribute more than we do on others. But uh, I would say I'm going to stay right where I am and feel good about what we're doing. I take it that means you heard all the challenges James deals with. Yeah, yeah don't want to go there. <laughs> It sounds like both of you guys are pretty blessed to be in, in spots that no you doubt. obviously uh, love. And I, we as an organization have been blessed to have you guys both as, as current leader, Paul, and, and, and past leadership, uh, James. And so we, we, we thank you guys for that. You guys, I know, both have put and continue to put a lot of hours into this organization and lead from a with a servant uh, approach to making it all better and for our membership. And, and it's greatly appreciated. Amen. Thanks thank for being with us today. Thank, thank you for asking. And that's a wrap on today's episode. For more coverage from Cattle Industry Convention, watch for upcoming editions of the Angus Journal. Visit angusjournal.net to subscribe. Or get real-time event coverage and updates from our team by following us on social. You can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Thanks for joining us today on the Angus Conversation, an Angus Journal podcast.